welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, according to a uh, 2010 Pew Research Center survey, uh, nearly half of U.S. Christians believe that Christ will definitely return to earth uh, before the year 2050. About half of Christians believe that Christ will definitely return to earth before the year 2050, and 38% believe that he will definitely not. And he won't be coming back for many decades to come. So like everything else, when you get into a church, sometimes you find differences of opinion, and there's one for you. But you know, um, I I read that survey, and it's a little dated now, but I think it's still, who knows how people would answer it today, but I think it'd probably be pretty, pretty clear that half of believers at least would think that Jesus will return to earth soon, and before the year 2050, they, they ran it out 40 years from that date, um, I wondered what would have been the best biblical answer. I mean, they probably got called on the phone or had somebody hit him with an email and, and say, be part of this survey. And so when that happens, you don't have a lot of time to think. And so you just come out with it, right? But if you had some time to think, what would have been the best biblical answer? Don't blurt it out. If somebody asked you, do you believe that Jesus is definitely going to be coming to earth by 2050, or do you not, what would be the the best biblical answer? Here is my take on it. The best biblical answer would be, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Because Jesus himself, who is the object of the question, said many times that we cannot know the time. Am I wrong? That's correct. Many times. We cannot know the time, so why guess about it or answer somebody from the Pew Research Center for a $10 gift certificate or whatever they do? It's the wrong question. It's a question that Jesus said is not ours to answer. We cannot know the time, but here's the other part of what Jesus often said. You cannot know the time, but it could be any time. Don't forget that part. Many people separate these two teachings and build mountains of doctrine on one and forget the other. We cannot know the time, but Jesus said, but in almost in the same breath many times, but I could come at any time. So if you were asked that survey question, your best answer would be it's the wrong question. We cannot know, but it could be any time. This is where Jesus uh, often uh, affected, insulted the, the, the teaching about the times of the end with that warning in Matthew 24, which as you know now, we're finishing what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It was a teaching that Jesus gave in the evening of probably Wednesday night in the midweek of the last week of his life on earth before the crucifixion. The disciples had asked him what would be the signs of his return. And he gave a lengthy teaching. It's recorded in Luke 21, but it's actually more fully recorded with other dimensions and other illustrations Jesus used in Matthew 24 and 25, the second longest teaching discourse he ever gave after the Sermon on the Mount. So it must have been important. It was filled with illustration, filled with fact, filled with prediction. And Jesus was being the great prophet and he was predicting the future about his return and the kingdom. So now we're sweeping through Luke 21, and we've, we're coming to the last portion of it, but the whole chapter has been filled with teaching about his return. Matthew gives us some added dimensions that he, he told the disciples that night. And in Matthew 24, 36, just to prove my opening statement here, that we cannot know the time, but it could be any time. Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So there's the statement, you cannot know the time. It is not for us to know. Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, limited himself in terms of knowing that as he was incarnated as man. But he's in heaven now, and he and the Father both are fully aware of when he's going to return. Don't make any mistake about that. But then look, he says in verse 36, 
Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. But then look at verse 44 of Matthew 24. Therefore, you also must be what? Ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there is that doctrine uh, that we call the doctrine of eminence. It means he could come back at any time. This is a precious doctrine. We're going to touch on it today repeatedly because in this passage in Luke 21, I believe Jesus is building his comments around the fact that he will return suddenly and we should be ready. So if somebody walks up to you and says, when do you believe Jesus is coming back? The answer you're going to give is that's the wrong question. Now, people have been curious, though, about the when, ever since Jesus told us he was returning. And, and the disciples are no exception. And if you stay in Matthew 24 and verse 3, as I've gone back to numerous times, as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately asking the when question. Really? And the what will be the signs? Tell us, when will these things be? Matthew 24, verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? People are curious about all of these things. There's this nascent desire to know what God knows, to have an insight into the plan of God, to have all of that settled. And so they, they ask the same question. When is it going to be? What will be the signs of the return that you've promised and of the, the arrival of your kingdom? So people have been asking the wrong question, if you will, since the disciples did it. Now Jesus indulged them and he gave them an, an answer to their question, not in the way that they were expecting, but he planned it all so that he could use their question as a launching board for this great teaching that he wanted us to know about the times of the end. And he goes in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21 and gives us this expansive description of certain signs that would happen. You remember we've studied all of them now. There were six signs. If you go back to Luke 21, they, they kind of flow out through the passage, and I'll touch on those in a few minutes. Again, it, it, just to remind you of what we've seen. But Jesus did say that there were going to be signs that would occur, events, elements that would trans, transform the earth that would show that his return is closer. There would be early signs that, that would take place even in the lifetime of the apostles, but certainly in, in the times approaching his return that Jesus talked about in this chapter. And then there would be a momentous sign that occurred in the middle of the tribulation period. That begins at verse 20, where the city of Jerusalem itself, surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist and, and, uh, and temporarily defeated and dispersed. That would be an ultimate sign as the Antichrist found his own place and demanded worship in the temple of Israel. That's yet to come. Jesus called that a, a massive sign that his return and, and the, the ultimate visible return to the planet was going to occur. And so there are all these signs that he gave them that as they see them, they know his visible return to the planet is getting closer. But he didn't tell them precisely when. He didn't tell them precisely when. Instead, he answers a greater question. And that's what I mean when I, the whole introduction here, really, it's, it's an understandable question. When will these things be? How will we know? What will be the signs? What will be the time? But the greater question Jesus said is who you are in anticipation of it. The greater question is not when I'm coming back, but will you be ready for me? And that's the nature of this text, because at the end of it, he, he wraps it all together and this is the application part of Pastor Jesus' message. <laughs> He's applying prophecy. And in light of all that he said about the future and all that he said about his coming and all that he said about how history is going to grind down and all these momentous events and all of this to be, that was filling their minds in light of all of that, what ought they to do in their lives and what, what ought every believer to do in his or her life in whatever age, in their age or in our age when Jesus said, I'm coming soon. You cannot know the day, but it could be today. What kind of response should we have? And Jesus said, watch yourselves, verse 34. Take a look at your life and make sure you're living for me and looking for me. 
Because you cannot know the day, but it could happen at any time, and it will happen at a time you do not expect. Watch yourselves is the commanding phrase in the passage. And then there's a a follow-on comment in verse 36, but stay awake at all times, that is actually the most frequent comment Jesus ever made when he talked about his return. You take a look at the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, wherever you want to look, but he taught about his return. The most frequent thing he ever said was, you stay awake. You be ready. So that's what we're going to talk about. You could title this message from Pastor Jesus, how to be ready for his return. And we're going to talk about three things. The first is we're going to start to understand the realities about his return, and we're going to talk about that day that is spoken of here in verse 34. Like I said, Luke 21 is a very debated chapter. There's lots of different interpretations brought by good Bible students and people with different points of view about the the, the nature of all that Jesus is teaching. It's a difficult chapter to teach. It ebbs and flows. It, It skips time. There are dual fulfillments, in my opinion, that we've taught and gone over in this chapter of prophecy. There's a lot to it. But I'm going to be teaching it as, as, as I look at this text and, and teach you as I have all the way through. Taking a look at the words and the power and the strength of the words in a grammatically and historically literal sense. And we're going to take a look at them and And we're going to take a look at the realities that he is speaking about here. So he says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And so a governing question would be, he's talking about that day. The question for an interpreter is, what is that day? Because we've gone over centuries here in his teaching. Jesus, in the very first part of Luke, talked about something that happened in A.D. 70 or was going to happen that was within the life of uh, most of the apostles. But then he arcs over time and he moves into the time of the tribulation when he gets to verse 20 and he talks about something that has not yet occurred. And then he moves all the way really into the, the, the essence of time at the very end in verse 27 when he comes back visibly and the whole world sees him. There's a lot of days. There's a lot that's been talked about here. What is the day that he's speaking of? I'm going to give you my understanding of it, my interpretation of it. It is a day that will come suddenly. That's a very important dimension of it. It's a day that will come suddenly. And we've already seen here, he says in the earlier verses, verses 25 through 28, and even in verses 29 through 33 and 34, that if you are in the final days of the last days, in the time of the tribulation itself, he says there are certain things that when you see them, you'll know that his visible return is almost there, and, and, and you'll be able to know that it's only a matter of months because of how the tribulation rolls. If, if Jerusalem is surrounded by armies smack dab in the middle of a seven-year period, you can count three and a half years pretty, pretty well. There are other signs that Jesus said in verses 25 to 27 in the universe, in the heavens, that'll happen just before his visible return. So there is some dimension in which his visible return can be anticipated. You can know, Jesus said, that I'm at the door. So that will not be as sudden as this one. So what aspect of the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus is sudden? I'll get to that and I'll show you my reasoning. But we first have to understand what the day of the Lord really is. My my interpretation of this passage is when he talks about that day, he's talking about what Jewish listeners would have understood as the day of the Lord. There was one that day for a Jewish reader and Jewish listener, for the apostles as they listened to him. It was what the Old Testament told us was the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a tremendous Old Testament doctrine. The day of the Lord is something that's taught in many pages of the Old Testament. 
It was, it described an, an, an age of time at the end of history. It was an age of time in which God is going to do two things. Number one, he's going to deal with Israel. They're currently under temporary judgment for, for their rejection of Messiah and their refusal of the truth. And in the final days of history, he's going to bring severe judgment upon them so that they will turn and see his son as Messiah. And he's going to restore them in a mighty work of saving grace. And he's going to fulfill his promises to them and set all of that up. So it's a time, it's a day at the final end of days when he deals with Israel, chastens them, they come back to him, and he fulfills his promises and sets up how history rolls into the future. But the other and greater element of the day of the Lord is it's the final time in history when God takes the gloves off and he judges a sinful planet. And he judges sinful men and women of all nations and all cultures in that time for their ultimate rejection of his son. So the day of the Lord is not just one day. It's an age of time. And it's coming at the end. You could say that today, I believe this, that we, we live in, in a day. And it's a day of grace. You see, the, 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 the idea of day uh, the word day, in, 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 as it's used in the Bible, could refer to a number of different things. Sometimes it referred to just daylight. It's day. <laughs> you can see the sun shining, and it was just a simple statement of meteorological fact. It was also used in the Bible to talk about a 24-hour day. Now, for the Jews, that was sunset to sunset, but it, just, it, it talked about a, a solar day. A day of time, today, this day. But also, the word could be used to describe a period of time, an age of time. Now, we do that in English today. I mean, I find myself doing this more and more these days. I look, in, I look back fondly on the day of my youth. I know I'm still a very young man. <laughs> Some of you could... <clears throat> Who's clearing their throat out there? <laughs> All right. No, but isn't that true that we use that? Oh, back in the day. Now, are we talking about a specific solar day? March 13th, 1982. That was a great day in my life, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> no, we're talking about an age. We're talking about a, a, a gathering of days, a period of time. You get my, would, you, would you grant me my point? We do that in English. They really did it in Hebrew. So it could talk about an extended period of time. The, the long and short of it, I don't have the time to explain it all from the Old Testament and a lot of verses and everything else, but the day of the Lord was an age. It was a, it was a span of time. I think there are different ways and ages in which God deals with the world, and you may disagree with me, but I believe, along with a lot of other theologians, that we are currently in what we'd, we could call a day of grace or the age of grace. What does that mean? It means the gospel is fully flowered in terms of the revelation of God's word, and it means that we are now in a time when the gospel of grace is being poured out on the planet and trumpeted out through his people. It's not to say God didn't deal with People in the Old Testament time, by grace, he did many times. But the cross has come. The resurrection has occurred. The Great Commission has been given. And the fullness of the gospel is moving throughout the world. One theologian I read this week, Dr. John Walvoord, put it this way. We may say that the present age is the day of grace. God in this present age has especially singled out the doctrine of grace for display, revealing grace as a basis for salvation and for our Christian life. Grace speaks of God's unmerited favor to us through Christ who loved us and who died for us. The scriptures picture that after this day of grace has come to its close, which may be simultaneous with the rapture of the church, then the day of the Lord will begin. End quote. What is he saying? Today is the day of salvation. All the scripture tells us, doesn't it? But there will come a time when God will end the day of grace in the sense that his focus will turn from reaching the world to finally judging the world. 
And that will be what theologians call the day of the Lord, what the prophets called the day of the Lord. It's a period of time. He goes on, the day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked mankind directly and dramatically in fearful and final judgment. In these days, today, a person may be a blasphemer of God, an atheist, can denounce God deeply, and seemingly God does nothing about it. But the day designated in Scripture as the day of the Lord is coming when God will clearly punish human sin, and he will deal in wrath and in judgment with a Christ-rejecting world. That is the day of the Lord. We are currently in an age or a day of grace, and one day that age will suddenly turn and an age or a day of judgment will begin, and that's the day of the Lord. Now, now that's an era of time yet to come. Now, I don't have the time to explain it all, but here's how I look at it as a Bible teacher. What begins the day of the Lord? What begins the final time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on mankind and he wraps up injustice human history? Listen, I believe it begins with the rapture of the church which is a sudden event, which is a signless event, which could occur at any time. This is the doctrine of imminence, which means it could happen next. There's nothing that needs to occur in prophetic or human history for the rapture to occur. I believe when the church is suddenly taken in the rapture, that begins the day of the Lord. You may differ. I'm teaching today. So, um, <laughs> and it begins that span of time. It'll begin with the rapture of the church and it will continue as God allows time to, to spool out with an age after that known as the tribulation. It's the age of the Antichrist. It's the age of the suffering of Israel and their eventual turning to Christ. It's the age of all the judgments of Revelation 6 through 18 poured out upon a rebellious world and the last judgment that God brings. It's the age that culminates in the great battle of Armageddon when the nations of the world turn against Jerusalem and, and against Christ himself. They're defeated by Christ at the visible return of Jesus. So as I've taught you many times, the, the return of Jesus has two phases. There's an invisible return for the church in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, John 14, and other passages. That's the rapture of the church. When that happens and the church is taken out, the judgment then begins to fall and the wrath of God begins to come. A wrath that the Bible tells us the church is not destined for. That time of tribulation rolls. That time of judgment continues all the way through Armageddon. And at the tip of the battle of Armageddon, who returns visibly? In the second phase of his return, Jesus returns visibly. The first time for his church, the second time with his church. The first time seen only to the church. The last time, Revelation 1-7, every eye on the nation, of the planet will see him. And he comes back in judgment. First time in rescue for his beloved. Second time in the day of the Lord, judgment to the planet. So you can see how all this flows in my thinking and many others look at the scripture in the same way. So the rapture of the church continuing with the rise of the Antichrist and the tribulation period, the rapture kicks off this great age called the day of the Lord. The battle of Armageddon, the visible return of Jesus, followed by the judgment of the nations on, alive on the earth at that time. And then the time of the millennial, the reign of Jesus, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on a partially renewed heaven and earth, the fulfillment of all of his promises to Israel, the rebirth of Israel spiritually, and all that the, the Old Testament prophets told us in chapter after chapter in the restoration of Israel. And then finally, it ends with the eternal judgment of all men and women who are resurrected and face Jesus Christ at the great white throne of judgment. That's the day of the Lord. It's filled with many events, many moments. So really there are two understandings under this, and you can see them on the screen to kind of summarize it. First, the day of the Lord, the day that I believe is being spoken of in verse 34, will be a length of time that will cover the final judgment of mankind, is what I'm teaching you. I've just gone over that, from rapture to final judgment. Second, the day of the Lord will suddenly begin with the rapture of the church, which could happen at any 
time. This is the interpretation that I believe gives most justice to the text and the overall teaching of Scripture about a difficult-to-understand dimension of his return. You watch yourselves, verse 34. Thus that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I'll tell you what. There's, uh, there's something in, uh, in old journalism, uh, newspaper journalism. Many of you remember those things. And uh, there, there, when, when a major event happened and they used the big headline type, some of you guys remember different things like the shuttle disaster or even 9-11. They would use the big type across the top of the front page to get your attention because this was a major event. Did you know that what, it, what editors call that? Second coming type. They say, get out the second coming type. It's the big event. How mocking they are. Well, yeah, you know what? There's going to be a big event that's going to come upon the whole world there at first 35. I think when hundreds of millions of people suddenly disappear from the planet in an unexplained but greatly prophesied moment called the rapture, that's going to be uh, second coming headline print in every language in the world. So the day of the Lord will be a length of time in the future that will cover the final judgment of mankind. And secondly, the day of the Lord will suddenly begin with the rapture of the church, which could happen at any time. This is what I think helps us understand that because Jesus said, he, he gave an answer to the disciples when they said, what will be the signs of your coming? And he went through these signs, but he did not say exactly when it would happen. Instead, he said, I want you to be ready at any time. You, you too be ready. He said it early in Luke, Luke twelve forty. you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Matthew 25, 13, be on the alert for you do not know the day or the hour. We don't know what, what, it, what is called the first event of the eschaton is what theologians call it. The eschaton is the final chapter of history. Eschaton, last from the word Greek for last. What is the first event of the eschaton? In my opinion, as a Bible teacher, it is when the church departs. It's the rapture. And we don't know when that's going to happen. That's why the church always lived in expectation it could happen at any moment. And we as a church need to do that today. Be ready. We, know we don't know when the first of the event, the rapture, is going to take place, but it will trigger all the other events that start and complete the day of the Lord. I think I've kind of gone over it. It's the doctrine of eminency. We believe he could return anytime. It could be sudden. That's the only aspect of his return that could be sudden in fullness after what I've taught over the last few weeks. And every generation of believers should live with the reality that this could happen at any time. The first event of the eschaton that triggers all the final events of the end when the church is taken by him in a signless event in the twinkling of an eye, gone, Christians all over the planet disappearing, and then judgments begin to unfold over that seven-year period. And I just, I don't need to go over it all again. I've just, just described it to you in detail. Believers talk about the return of Jesus as being imminent. Could happen at any time. Now, the New Testament believers understood this. And Titus, there's just so many places you can go that talk about the fact that they believe Jesus could come for them. They were hoping for it. Then when they greeted each other, they said, Maranatha, which was an Aramaic word that simply meant, Lord, come now. <laughs> if you didn't believe it could happen then, they locked you up. I mean, I mean... It, it's just, they, they, it was a full passion. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14 and Titus 2 verse 12 were to deny ungodliness. Watch yourselves and deny worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a blessed hope. For in that moment, suddenly could happen today, could happen this morning when he comes for us and we see him. We suddenly see him, we're with him in the air, and we're headed back to the Father's house. I don't even want to preach no more. I don't. Don't you want to see him? First Thessalonians chapter 4, I mean, we can look at that. It's a marvelous text, but in First Thessalonians chapter 4, and you look at verse 
16 of First Thess. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the destined dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive or are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then what does it say? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's something the church hoped for. The Thessalonians were looking for it. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul says, you believers are waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even crusty old James, as, 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 as uh, dark a mindset as he might have had about some things, he said, you be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. It could happen now. So the doctrine of eminency is something the New Testament teaches, and I think it's in play here. It is the sudden return of Jesus. Oh, we don't need to know when. We need to know that it could happen at any time. And now we're getting into the body of the teaching, the second major point. Thanks for hanging on this far. And that is, what does he say about how to be ready? Now go to the text in Luke 21. And he gives them a principle. Now that I've explained what this day of the Lord is, now that I've explained the first part of it that happened suddenly will be the rapture of the church, now that I explain that it will affect the whole earth, just as he talks about here in verse 34 and 35, and we, that it could happen for us at any time, how do you live in light of that? Well, Jesus says, don't be weighed down by the temptations of this life. You watch yourselves, verse 34, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Don't get so wrapped up in this world, in its problems or its attractions or its issues, that when he does come, it's a total surprise to you. Because you're wrapped up in the world that you're leaving as opposed to looking for the one who's coming. Don't let yourself be caught in that situation. Watch yourselves. It's interesting, the Greek word watch there talked about, it was used of a, of a captain that would bring his, his ship back closer to the shore. He's saying, look at your life. It's going to be hard. The, 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 the nearer you get to my appearing, he's already told them how hard it's going to be, how dark it's going to be, how high persecution is going to be, how crazy the planet's going to be, how wicked the world is going to be. And, and, and it's going to be a time where if you don't be careful, you're going to be influenced by all of that and you're going to drift away from me. Watch over yourself. And if you see yourself drifting away from me, get back to the shore. Stay close to me, he said. And that's not just for certain times in your life when you're under great temptation. Watch yourselves as present imperative, which means it's something you have to be doing all the time. Now, when people, you know, the, the scripture says that all the way through these final last days in the day of the Lord, even though judgment's reigning on the planet, people are still going to be trying to carry on their lives as usual, defying God as usual, receiving, refusing to repent as usual, and sinning maximally. They're, they're going to deny it all and deny his return and mock his return up to the very end. But you're to be living for him. Don't fall into the temptation not to. And there's two temptations here. He talks about being weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. That's the first one. And the cares of this life. That's the second. I'll describe them to you. There's going to be a great temptation as things get bad and things get worse and things get uglier and harder that you're going to be tempted to avoid it all. The temptation of avoidance. How did I get that out of the verse 34? Well, dissipation, there's some interesting words here. Weighed down, first of all. Baros, it, came, it meant a weight or a heaviness, and it meant a burden that you, that you gather. You, you become weighed down with things over time. So he's talking there about getting involved in sin. He's talking there about getting involved in things God doesn't want for you, but you get off track and they start to layer onto your life and burden you. And some of it has to do, quite frankly, with the other two words, dissipation. That basically meant drinking yourself almost unconscious. Just being honest. Had to do with drinking and 
Here's one Greek expert's analysis of it. Dissipation, krypele in, in the Greek, is used to describe excessive wine drinking and the carousing and drunkenness that ensues, as well as next day's symptoms of hangover, including headache, nausea, etc. Never thought I'd ever see a Greek expert say the word hangover, but there it is. He's saying that, I don't think that's me. Well, you know, things are going to be very intense and sin is going to be at a high level. You can get just about anywhere in your Christian life. You still have your flesh. And if your flesh is like my flesh, it's capable of anything. He's saying, listen, the age around you is going to be getting involved in dissipation. And then the word drunkenness, it just talks about being intoxicated to the point where, where your body is just soaked with it. Now, why do I, I talk about this as the temptation of avoidance? Well, basically, he's talking about addictive behavior. Drinking so, so much so that it occupies your life, it begins to affect your body, and you're dissipated it, it, in a soul. In other words, addiction. That's our modern phrase. Addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to a lot of things. Why do we fall into addictive behaviors have you ever heard of the phrase self-medicate? Why do people self-medicate? Because of pain in their world. Isn't that why you self-medicate? Oh, go ahead. Come on, admit it. There's lots of different ways a person can self-medicate that don't involve going to a liquor store. I don't think I need to say more. There's lots of ways in, we, in which we can run away from the pain of life, just like the world will do. And Jesus is saying the days are going to be dark. Don't you get weighed down with all this too. Instead of, of, of trying to medicate yourself into avoidance, walk with me. Don't let this age tempt you and get you into that position. You know, we know so many believers. We say that uh, she started well, but lately she's fallen back into, and you can fill in the blank. That is way down with it again. We need to go and help her get back out of that. That's what believers do for believers. That's what he's talking about here. The second thing, he says, and don't get all wrapped up in the cares of this life. That's the temptation of anxiety. It's the verse of the temptation of whatever you do in your behaviors where you're doing it to avoid the, the difficulties of a world going crazy. The world's going to be tempted to do it. You stick with me, he says. Stay close to the shore of the Savior. And also, don't let anxiety overcome you. The cares of this life, one of the most picturesque Greek words ever, merimnao, it meant to draw in different directions, <laughs> to pull apart. <laughs> it meant you're suddenly doing this because you see that is a threat and that is a threat and this is a threat and your radar scope is filled with threats and you're living your life constantly because of anxiety and threats and things that could happen. Oh, in the times of the end, that'll be a big, big issue in life. And the more you do that, there's another dimension of the word, you're, the more you're pulled apart emotionally, psychologically. All of us are experiencing that in these increasingly tumultuous days. It's just going to get worse, Jesus said. But you be different. Know that I'm coming Know that I'm with you now. Cast all your cares upon who, Peter said? Upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. So Jesus said, it's going to be dark, just like I told you. But you watch yourself. You keep yourself close to the shore of the Savior. Don't you get involved with, with, with behaviors that will keep you from the pain of the times. Take the pain of the times to me. Be strong. Don't let all the cares of what's coming distract you so much that when I do come back, I'll come on you suddenly like a trap, and I'll find you not believing me like I wished you would. Now, does that mean that if Jesus comes back and you're in a situation you don't want to be in, that he's not going to receive you. No, you're forgiven and you're restored in him. You're his. He bought you. It does mean that you could be like the believers in 1 John 2, that when you return, Jesus returns, you shrink back. Now, why would you shrink back? Because in that moment, as he returns and takes you, there may be a nanosecond when you realize he's found you in a place you wish you'd never be. There's a lot in the New Testament about wanting to live 
to please him and honor him at his coming. I think that's what he's describing. Well, now quickly. That's the negative. He's teaching from the negative there. You watch yourself. Then he goes in verse 36 and switches to the positive. That's what you need to stay away from. Here's what I want you to be devoted to. But, he says, stay awake at all times. The most frequent thing Jesus ever said about his return. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Who's going to escape all these things that are going to take place? My belief as a Bible teacher, his bride, the church. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm going to get you. And when I do come back suddenly, you'll escape all these things. They may be in in turmoil emerging on the earth, but you're going to be standing with me. He says, you'll be standing before the Son of Man. Where do we go after the rapture? We go to the kingdom of heaven, and soon we're going to be at the great reward ceremony of the Lord Jesus Christ where we stand before the Son of Man and receive our rewards, even as the earth is rumbling through its final judgment. That's what I believe that passage is an intimation of. Can I say it's absolutely textually provable? I I just look at that. My, My interpretation of that is that is an image of the rapture. You may differ. But the bottom line, I think he says, is I'm coming. Don't let yourself be pulled away from the shore of the Savior. It's going to be bad. But you do four things. Number one, stay awake. Have a mindset that I'm coming back and I could come back at any time. Know that it could happen. Romans 13 11, knowing the time, understanding the time, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now your salvation is nearer to you than when you believed. What's he talking about there? Hey, every day I'm closer to coming back to get you. Could be today. Are you looking to me? Are you awake? Are you ready? 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. Go down to verse 28. In light of that, now little children, abide in him. Live for Jesus because you don't know the moment when he will return. Just be, instead of getting involved in while the world reacts, stay awake, live for him. Secondly, stay praying, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. What is that all about? It means as you walk with me and abide with me, ask me to give you the strength to honor me until I come and get you. Show me your faith is real. Persevere. Learn to practice spiritual warfare. I think in the very time before he comes and gets us, although it could be today, if he tarries, this world is rottening. That's a new word for you. Just the way the Bible said it would. It's ripening for judgment. And for the believer who wants to hold to the truth, it's a more dangerous place to be spiritually than ever. Do you think we need to learn how to practice spiritual warfare? Oh, yeah. When's the best time to learn spiritual warfare practices? When you're in the sudden attack or before you need it? Thank you. Third, he said, you learn to stay strong. Praying for that strength that you'll be strong to persevere until I come for you and you escape all these things that are going to take place. What's all the things from verse 20 all the way through verse 26? That's my belief. The final times, the final events of the very end, when the day of the Lord starts. When does it start? When the people of the Lord are taken. Up until then, it's going to darken. Here's the last, and he says, you stay focused. Keep an eye on the fact that one day I'm going to come and get you. And I'm going to take you, as Jesus said in John 14, where I am, there you may be also. Focus on that, beloved. Know that one day you'll stand before me based on my blood alone, and you'll get your reward. Don't focus on the headlines. Don't obsess on the internet. Don't freak out over geopolitics. Don't be troubled about economics. Don't be 
worrying about how your 401k is becoming a none of 1k. <laughs> Don't get all into that. What is that? Um, that would be verse 34. That's a care of this life. You focus on the fact that someday soon I'm coming to get you and you'll be with me. Stay focused and pray yourself home. Well, here Jesus now concludes a full chapter of rather dark prophecy, most of it. But he concludes it with a bright promise, doesn't he? Oh, I'm coming. I'm going to come suddenly. You be ready. I'm coming for you. Through all of these things that may come to pass, it may get darker before he comes for us, probably will, I don't know. But if you're his, he's going to keep you. And at his appointed moment, he'll come and get you and you'll stand before him. And that's what the Thessalonian believers counted on. First Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to anything written to you, have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, there's that phrase I've been teaching you, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That's the entirety of what I've taught you through Luke 21. But when does that day of the Lord begin? When he comes for us. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. I don't know about you, I believe he could come at any time. Why? My Bible tells me so. And that gives me hope. It allows me to face what I face, to see what I see. It keeps me going. And you know, that's what believers of every generation have known. In John's time, they greeted one another with the words, Maranatha, oh, come, Lord. But believers through all the generations have been encouraged by the fact that Jesus is coming and I'm going to hang on. Let me just read to you from some Christian people who finished well all through the centuries. People say, oh, this is a new idea. It's a new doctrine. No, Hal Lindsey didn't start it. No. The doctrine of the imminency of Jesus' return, the fact that he could come at any time, is inscripturated. The early church believed it with a passion. Believers over all the centuries have held on to it with conviction. Here are a few. Samuel Rutherford, who wrote in 1641 and who was regarded as, he was a pastor but a, a lover of God's presence. He may have some said known the Lord more intimately than just about anybody else in the English-speaking world. Pastor Rutherford wrote this, Oh, that Christ would make long strides. <laughs> in other words, he's saying, Jesus, I know you're coming for us. Run faster. <laughs> I want to see you, Lord. Oh, that he would fold up the heavens as a cloak and shovel time and days out of the way. I love that. Jesus, come for me. I know you could come at any time. Come sooner. What's that? What the disciples said in, in Revelation. Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. 1641. Matthew Henry in 1694, the man who still has written what is commonly regarded as the greatest English language commentary on the Bible ever, said Christ will come when he pleases to show his sovereignty and he will not let us know when to teach us our duty. That's this passage, 1694. George Whitfield, one of the great evangelists of history, the author of the, the per person that was the, the spiritual spark plug for the great awakening in the American colonies in the 1740s, said, I'm daily waiting for the coming of the Son of God. Deal Moody, the great evangelist of the 1800s, the Billy Graham of his time, 
who was also a pastor and a Bible teacher, said, I never preach a sermon without thinking that possibly the Lord may come before I preach another. Well, thank God somebody else thinks like I do. (laughs) And I know some of you have been sitting out there on some Sundays saying, oh, Lord, please come. (laughs) It's okay. I'm not perfect. J.C. Ryle, a pastor to pastors, a great doctrinal thinker in 1880, said uncertainty about the day of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency. It's interesting. What if Jesus had given us a date? What if you're in battle as a Christian and that date is going to be a long time after you die? Would that not tend to throw you into despondency? On the other hand, Not knowing creates a sense of constant expectation, Dr. Ryle said. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries of world history in 1885, said, since Jesus may come any day, it's well to be ready every day. A lot of people say, oh, this whole idea of believing in the rapture is escapist. It believes you don't want to serve God. You want to avoid tribulation. Uh, yeah. And believe me, as I've said, there'll be enough tribulation for us to walk through. There already is, and there'll be more. No, I want to see him. But it doesn't keep me from working for him. In fact, if I know he could come at any time, do I want to tell my neighbor more about Jesus? Yes. Hudson Taylor evangelized that way. I don't know how much time I have left, or more properly, non-believer, how much time you have left. In his own mind, he couldn't wait to get to inland China because he knew Jesus was coming. G. Campbell Morgan, maybe the greatest expositor of the early 1900s, put Bible exposition back on the map in, 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 in British in the British church, said, I'm not looking for death, I'm looking for him. So there, all these people serving God, looking for Jesus and believing it could come at any time. Two more. Here's a surprise. C.S. Lewis, you think, wow, C.S. Lewis, intellectual, academic, massive philosophical Christian thinker. Did you know that C.S. Lewis said that one of the greatest doctrines of Christianity is the second coming of Jesus? He said, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. (laughs) And then, of course, who could speak of the greats without mentioning Billy Graham in the year 2002? He said, the subject of the second coming of Christ has never been popular to the people of this earth. But to the true believer, it's precious. Is it precious to you?